Hello and welcome to episode seven of the Wilder podcast. Chloe, good morning. Good morning, Tom and everyone. <laughs> Is that because I said, why didn't you say good morning to me last time? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so do you want to talk about the Plague House? I guess we should probably mention the fact that yet again, we seem to have been hit by the Lurgy and it is, well, we think it's COVID. Chloe's parents came for the weekend and then two days later messages saying, um, we've just tested positive for COVID. So yes, hasn't been great. And probably on an unrelated event, Chloe, what were we doing at the weekend? Well, hopefully not super spreading COVID around Monmouth. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't think about that. But we were there for the Action on Climate Emergency Climate Festival at the weekend, which was a really fantastic event to be part of, completely community-driven and community-led, which was looking at kind of a number of key themes around how we can work to address the climate emergency. There was so much work that went into that. I mean, it's ran by volunteers and, I mean, shout out to Cherry, Charles, and I mean, there's so many other people, but those two are kind of the, the key cornerstones cornerstones yeah let's give it that organizers of it and they were brilliant and just tireless in making it happen over a hundred stands loads of speakers two theaters were used throughout the whole of the event and you know i'm sitting next to quite kind of a big deal now uh, <laughs> headline event chloe constable biodiversity hero for monmouthshire yeah I mean, that's that's quite a big intro uh, and no, it was a, it was a real pleasure to be invited to go and talk a bit about range project and i was sitting alongside some two fantastic speakers so cherry was talking about her 1.5 acres which uh, is kind of primarily a vegetable garden um vegetable fruit garden but does is uh, got a lot of wee wilding principles within it um and then cheryl was talking about her beautiful plot in monmouth which is a small garden space entirely committed to kind of wilding and just hearing some of her ideas and responses to questions around kind of weed management it was real pleasure yeah i think we should put a link to cherry's website in veg because it is delicious in the show notes so if you're a monmouth way definitely i'd recommend that and cheryl just seemed like a super genuine super experienced lady when she was talking and i'm quite yeah, keen to pop my head around her garden and look around no she's kindly invited us to and, and she does we'll be opening her garden again next year as part of the national garden scheme for anyone that's interested so we should probably put a link to her website as well also on the show notes so that was saturday going on sunday now i was i mean meant to be organized in the transport section i'd definitely say that i was responsible on the day for the transport section maybe less of the organization but it was really cool there was like hydrogen cars electric cars there was techniquest there to help engage children about science and understand a bit more about effects of acidification within the oceans and showing that and really cool and engaging science experience for the children so that was really good fun but you haven't mentioned the most important stand no <laughs> i was just about to come on to that the day before obviously chloe not only was she riding her high of finishing off her presentation. She was also sat down cutting and sticking a whole bunch of different quizzes and engagement for children within that section, weren't you? You were kind of leading on one of the stands. Yeah, so I was, I was in charge of the transport games. But as part of that, I was I had a little quiz prepared for the adults. So when their children were busy playing with basically the Duplo from home, we were also <laughs> sharing some knowledge around kind of true and false facts to do with sustainable transport. Now, I've not been involved in any of that. And I still have intentionally avoided looking at any of the questions. And I believe you, I can see the sheets in front of me. So do you want to test my knowledge? Yeah, I'm going to pick my three favourite facts to quiz Tom on. And it's a true and false answer. So are you ready? I'm ready. I quite like true and false answers. I can't look too stupid. I mean, I suppose you can. Well, well. (laughs) that is entirely possible. Anyway, let's go for it. So an electric car converts 75 to 95% of its available energy into motion in comparison to around 30% for fossil fuel cars. True or false? Um... I reckon that 
it being a climate festival, I imagine there's, there's, I don't want to be too literal about this, but I assume you're looking for the positive facts. Also, you know, when you start a combustion engine, there's lots of noise, there's lots of smoke, well, not lots, but smoke, there's energy, there's heat that gets generated with the engine going. So yeah, I reckon that is a true fact. You are correct. And I guess I just included that because I it's something I hadn't really been aware of that, you know, obviously, you know, that the source of fuel is greener with electric car, but to think about it being a lot more efficient because apparently a lot of energy is lost through, well, heat, as you mentioned, and also through friction within a combustion engine mm. was a fact that I was not aware of before I started this research. Okay. Like it. Give me another one. So the next one is, it is cheaper to take the train than to fly in Europe. That's definitely false because the prices of trains and train rides and going anywhere on the train, I just, I can't believe it. It's astronomical and I can't fathom why that is. Well, funny you ask that question because my next fact, are you ready? All modes of transport within the UK are taxed equally. Is it probably a bit leading? (laughs) Well, this is the true or false? I mean, false. Yeah, you're correct. And one of the other things that I was really surprised by in my research was that actually aviation fuel is effectively subsidised by the government by with, without any tax. And there's also no VAT on plane tickets, which is part of the contributing factors to why air travel is fundamentally cheaper than train travel, even though, I'm going to drop in another fact, train travel is on average seven times less polluting than planes. Well done, Chloe, for all the hard work that weekend. I just stood around and uh, directed talked a lot about cars yeah this is great uh, and also some really entrepreneurial businesses as well but I won't, I won't, i'll probably save that for another episode so i'd like to talk about one more thing before we go on to the interview we've got for this week so we were visited by simon who is the chap i don't know a couple of episodes back we talked about it myself going on a tiny homes building course so Sai was the chap that ran that that and he very kindly offered to come to the land have a look around and help kind of guide and advise us on our two cabins that we're hoping to build this winter in the course of his day here, we had a good chat. Chloe did an amazing kind of lunch for us. And we sat down and chatted and, and a bit of arm twisting later. And he's agreed to do a mini series with us all about homesteading, which is pretty much what he's an expert in. He has it only recently since he's had children, has he settled down to live in a home. Since before that, he was all about living in his tiny homes off grid and growing his own vegetables and crucially being part of communities and, and, and it become almost a ninja at integrating into communities that you can imagine a chappy turning up in a tiny home and kind of setting up home somewhere where there wasn't a home before. You can imagine it could be kind of a polarizing event. However, he's become this ninja at engaging with the community, being part of it and crucially adding value, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, he's a really wise person and we had some fascinating conversations over lunch about yeah sustainable food networks and aquaponics and having um, him feature on the podcast and for a few episodes is going to be fantastic and everyone's going to be able to take something away from from his conversations if you need a dinner guest i'd invite him over it's just just great so links to Sai and Sai's work will, of course, be in the show notes as well. Right, let's move on to the interview for this week. We're joined by Alistair Cameron, who's the founder and executive director of Somerset Wildlands, which is the charity working to rewild parts of the Somerset levels. And I think what I really appreciated about his interview is that the first half was a really broad, you could say academic, but actually Alistair's wit came through throughout, so it was a really lively discussion about the distinctions between rewilding, conservation and restoration. And I certainly learned a lot from the conversation. And then the second half, Alistair talks a bit more about his kind of personal journey with Somerset Wildlands, about what the project's trying to achieve, and I guess how also you can get involved in that. 
Good morning, Alistair. Pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Hello, thanks for having me. In tradition with the podcast, it'd be great if you're able to tell us a bit about who you are and what you find yourself doing at the moment. Yeah, okay. My name is Alistair Cameron and I am the founder and currently the executive director of a charity called Somerset Wildlands. That's a rewilding charity um, looking to do rewilding in and around the Somerset levels, which is a sort of former wetland in the southwest of England. That's what I'm doing now, but obviously I've been, I've done other things over the years. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a lifelong environmental campaigner and activist. You know, I trained as a zoologist. I worked as a journalist. I worked for an NGO that did undercover investigations into environmental crime all over the world. I worked for Friends of the Earth. I worked on beavers, all that sort of stuff. But rewilding is really the thing that's captured my imagination. Now, to be honest, it captured my imagination long before I even knew what it was called. One of those things that as soon as I heard the word rewilding, it just made sense. It was like a little electric shock. It was like, oh yeah, that's what we need to do. We need to rewild, you know? And so that's where I found myself now, because I think it's, to me, it's the most hopeful thing happening in the environmental sector at the moment. Oh, no, that, that's fantastic. And I, I already feel there's so many questions I want to ask, but, and, I'd, I'm, and it'd be great to hear more about kind of Somerset Wildlands and that project. But before we kind of get stuck into that, I guess I'm wondering about, you know, when we say the word rewilding, what does that mean to you? Because I guess it means different things to different people. Yeah, it's one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot. And I, and I guess it is still contested. And that's fine, because it's a new thing. It's or it's relatively new anyway, particularly in a UK context. So it's going to take some time to find its feet. And there's going to be different ways of thinking about what it means. And, and you know, it's, we're at that stage where there's a bit of a shakedown in something new. But for me, rewilding is, I mean, there's various definitions that do the rounds. You know, there's one, if you look online, that says it's about restoring land to an uncultivated state. And actually, I think that's not bad. I have one criticism of that, which is that it contains the word rest restoring, which causes a lot of confusion, as I'll discuss in a second. But the crucial thing there is about returning land to an uncultivated state. So not a particular point in time, not a set ecosystem, not a particular point in history, but essentially to a wild state or as wild as we can. Obviously, wild is a very, you know, it's a very loaded term. Nothing on earth is completely wild and nothing is completely tame. But some things, you know, to all intents and purposes are wilder, shall we say. So it's about moving things along that along that direction. And I think that's absolutely crucial because to me, rewilding, it's open-ended. You know, we don't know what the end outcome is going to be. It's about allowing those natural processes to play out as best we can. Obviously, there's always limits to that. There's always compromises. But, you know, our intent matters in these things. And, for you know, for want of a better phrase, it's about letting nature do what it wants and trying to facilitate that as best we can without our ideas of exactly what it should be like. That's important, I think, because in the UK, and it's, I think this is an important bit of context. It's a bit techy and a bit nerdy, but I think it's important for the UK because the reason rewilding has caught the public imagination, the reason it's taken off as it has, is because of some of the inadequacies in the way we've been doing standard conservation. So it's not just a rebranding of conservation. I think that's quite important. That's not to criticize conservation as such. You know, conservationists are heroes. They've they've achieved a huge amount. Without them, we'd have nothing. You know, they've bequeathed us the stock of wildlife we have, but it's not enough. And it's not enough for a couple of reasons. Conservation, as it stands in the UK, it's a little bit different in other parts of the world, but as it stands in the UK, has essentially been about finding a piece of land or a habitat or a piece of farmland with something we like, a species we like, a set of flowers we like, or a sort of semi-assemblage that we like, and trying to keep it that way. Maybe enhance it a little bit or improve it a bit, but it's essentially about keeping it roughly in that way, perhaps forever. And because our habitats are so intensively worked over the years and have been so interfered with over the millennia, that often means very intensive management. 
And often it means intensive management for quite a small number of species. I'm not saying that's a waste of time. It's not. It's important because without that, many of those species would have already vanished. So as I say, that, you know, that, that's been an important process, but it's not enough in itself because there's not enough of those places left to preserve. You know, we're still talking about tiny fragments. Also, in many cases, we are robbing Peter to pay Paul, as it were. You know, you're, you're protecting one species by killing another or by mm -hmm. wiping out another. And that, you know, that might make sense when the thing you're protecting is so rare. It's the only sort of way of doing things. But at scale, it means you're constantly trying to pick winners and losers. It's very fragile. It's very expensive. It's quite unsatisfactory, I think, from a human point of view, because you're basically trying to pick the outcomes all the time. And it's going to become increasingly untenable. You know, as the climate changes, that's going to become more and more untenable. That's the sort of basic reasons. There's a lot of other reasons, too, where I think it's a problematic term now. I uh, hate to use that word problematic, but there we go. I've just done it. But it's a, it's a <laughs> difficult term now. But I think I think that's that's the sort of key ones. Allied to that, then, there's a thing called restoration. And restoration and rewilding often, I think, get very, very deeply confused. And, and they are confusing, Frank. Let's be honest. They do overlap a bit. And most rewilding projects have a bit of restoration. And most rewilding has a restoration is a bit of rewilding. But broadly, I would say restoration is about trying to return a habitat to a specific state. It's about saying, this used to be a peatland. This used to be a forest. We're going to turn it back as close as we can into that kind of forest. And that's a really important process, too. I think it does have a place. But again, as the climate changes and as we're missing so many things, often what will happen ultimately with those projects is once you've restored it, you will end up in a situation of just managing them that way forever. You're arresting successions. You're going to have to get into a point and then keep them that way. And again, I think that's difficult. It's untenable. And it doesn't allow a lot of those processes to play out because more and more as we understand ecology and the examples of rewilding and so on, we realize that actually, hey, we don't know necessarily what nature needs or we don't know everything we think we know it needs. The processes are more complex than we think. But also, you know, you might be conserving something your whole life, trying to conserve something um, and doing your absolute best to create the conditions for it. But it turns out that what they're really lacking is something completely different. So there was a good example recently, just the other day, in fact, I saw an example of bittern. This is a, a sort of wetland breed type of heron, basically. It's like a fat heron that you get in wetlands. And it, um, you know, they, they, they bred in Derbyshire for the first time in living memory. And what allowed that to happen was nothing to do with, well, not nothing. I'm sure they've done a lot of very hard work. But the thing that allowed it to happen was the reintroduction of beavers to an enclosure in that area. And they created the wetland. So, you know, you often get this argument, why would you introduce something instead of conserving what we have? And I would say, well, it's the other way around, because often bringing stuff back is what's necessary. Now, obviously, bringing stuff back is technically restoration. It's included in rewilding because it's about allowing a, a crucial ecosystem function that's missing to return. So that's where it fits into rewilding. It's the bit everyone likes to talk. Maybe we can set. I'm talking a long answer here, so maybe we can separate these out a little bit. So most, you know, most rewilding has that element of restoration implied because of, of the returning of the species. But there are different things. You know, you could legitimately, I think, rewild without any species restoration because you will get something. The question is just if it's what you like or if you think it's useful. Yeah, you know, you are exactly the guest that I love because I think you, you know, it's it's engaging. And although it was a long answer, it, there's logic throughout it. So you know, thank you very much for that. And again, I know you as a very straight guy, give me a straight answer. So here's a question about when you talk about definitions and technicalities uh, and definitions of rewilding or definitions of restoration, would you say it's important? Should we define it? Or actually, is it okay to let someone call a project rewilding when, you know, it doesn't sit with your concept of rewilding, but actually it's about capturing the, ma the imagination of the principles or the concepts or the, the intention behind it? Um I'd say the answer to that is both yes and no, if you see what I mean. And that's not a straight answer, but I'll try and explain yeah. it as straight away as I can. 
Um, I'm not one of those people that thinks rewilding can be reduced to a single thing or to a set of protocols and procedures to be gone through. I think that's that's missing the point. You know, and I think it's okay if something doesn't have a clear definition. I always say, you know, punk doesn't have a clear definition. Hip hop doesn't have a clear <laughs> definition. They have characteristics, but that doesn't mean they haven't changed the world, right? Or they're extremely powerful for people who are interested in them. From that point of view, I don't think it has to be a clear set of protocols and, and definitions. What I do think is important, though, is that when you're using the term rewilding, you are capturing the spirit of the thing. And that's where I think sometimes actually that's the hardest part of all of it, is that we look at the protocols and the biodiversity indicators, but actually what's at the core of this is about letting go. It's about letting nature take the lead. It's about allowing nature to do its thing, for want of a better word. You know, I hate putting it in those personal terms, but it's hard to find a language that, that does it in another way. And I think that's the really, really important part. And actually, when you look across nature, one of the biggest things we need to save nature and to save ourselves as a result or to save our, our type of living that we like is a change in ourselves and our culture. So I think that's why it's so important that we hold on to that element of it. You know, we talked a little bit about restoration there and the difference between restoration and rewilding. I always get this wrong, but essentially restoration is nature enabled, but human led. So you're using the process of nature, but humans are setting the outcome. Rewilding is the other way around. It's human enabled. So we're allowing those conditions to emerge, but it's nature led. It's nature that's taking the lead. And I think that's really crucial. And I do think some rewilding projects are using the term in a difficult way, not out of, well, some are probably doing it just because they want to capture that excitement and, you know, sell carbon credits, whatever. And I do think that's a bit of a problem if you're doing something that's not reflecting what people might reasonably expect it to. That's all, that's a problem in any aspect of life. But also because there is a reason that rewilding came along. And it's the reasons we talked about in the last question or, or in a previous question, which is that there are some deficiencies in the way we've done conservation and the way we've done restoration. There are some deficiencies there. And so whatever we call rewilding, it's here to try and address those deficiencies. And I think that's the, the crucial issue. It's so interesting hearing about the kind of distinctions for people that don't come from a kind of ecological background to think about the kind of differences between rewilding, restoration, conservation. I'm hearing you talking about the value of all of these different sorts of approaches. Mm. How do you see them sitting alongside each other or working together? Or do, do you see an interrelation between these different approaches? I may sound like I'm being very dogmatic, but actually I'm not really. I think ultimately we're all here for the same reason. We're trying to create space for nature. We're trying to bring nature and wildness back into our lives. It's just sort of subtle differences in terms of where we think the emphasis. I mean, the reason for me rewilding is so important is because it's the one thing we're missing. It's the one thing we've been missing all my life. All I've known in this country and in Ireland as well was these tiny little nature reserves that were very intensively managed for certain outcomes. They were festooned, frankly, with human paraphernalia. <laughs> you know, visitor centers, hides, walkways, signage, you know what I mean? They're very intensively controlled for certain outcomes. And don't get me wrong, as, as I said before, they have a function to play and quite an important one in lots of ways, but I don't think it's all we should have. And so rewilding for me and also restoration, but, you know, the idea of, of simply allowing wildness was really, really important. So to me, that's why I focus on rewilding, because it's a thing we just don't have. We have no wild land in this country. You know, even with all the rewilding projects now, many of which are on the light end of the rewilding spectrum. There's relatively few, I would say, are on the, the sort of more wild end of the rewilding spectrum. Even all that together, it's a tiny amount of land, really. And they are just at the beginning of that journey. So very few of them are in any way what you could call wild now. And obviously wild, as I say, it's a very loaded and subjective term. And some people would object to it. I understand that. But it's, it's what I'm just using for the purposes of the conversation. So I think they can rub along each other quite nicely. I'm not saying we should get rid of the conservation areas we've got now because 
in many cases that would lead to losses of things that are just hanging in there. You know, I think some of the restoration projects really have value in the sense that you might, I think where we, I think the only thing the restoration needs to be careful of is that it doesn't end up getting trapped in a sort of chasing its own tail cycle. So, you know, for example, you talk about restoring a, a rainforest and it's absolutely valid. You know, you're restoring the, you're, you know, the conditions are still there for say a, a temperate rainforest to exist. You're simply trying to restore the space and some of the missing species to allow that to happen. But you can still allow that to develop through sort of wild processes. I think where that would become a problem is if you start to really try to micromanage the outcome. But I think that's great. And I think rewilding then is simply, what for me is beautiful about rewilding is it's almost the opposite of conservation. Instead of finding a land with loads of stuff on it that you like, that you're trying to protect, you're doing it backwards. You know, with the land that we work on, we're finding ordinary farmland that really, frankly, starts its life looking like a flat green snooker table. And then we're allowing it to become something else. So you're basically saying, if we step back, if we create space for nature, almost regardless of where that is, it will have value. Now, some places may end up having more value in human terms than others, or in our, you know, the way we measure wildlife may seem better than others. But ultimately, for very little active input, if we get out of the way, to quote Jurassic Park, life finds a way, you know, stuff <laughs> comes in, and that's what's brilliant. You know, that's what's so exciting about it, is that ultimately we can just get out of the way and things will happen. And I guess I feel really clear in my own mind about what the benefits of wildness are for nature. Mm. What do you think the benefits of wildness are for humans? Because it it feels like it speaks to something in us that I'm not sure I don't know how to kind of... Totally. You know, someone once once said to me, one of the criticisms of rewilding, you know, is that, oh, it's it's wildly romantic. It's, It's wildly sort of ideological and all this stuff. And I think, yeah, in a way it is. But so what? So are all the best things in life. So all the things that actually really matter to people are about beauty and hope and enjoyment. And I think, you know, okay, there's lots of cold, hard statistics that do the round about the importance of nature to mental health and mental well-being. I think that's all true. That's all absolutely valid. You know, similarly with ecosystem services, right? We all know all the stuff about how we need clean water. We need to store carbon. We need a functioning ecosystem to grow our food. That's the really hard stuff. And that is absolutely true, as far as I'm aware. That is absolutely true. We need those things to have a sort of stable environment that we can all live in. So that's the really hard stuff. But above that, there is this second element, which is that it's about joy. And it's about having a nature that we can experience and grow up. And you know, my kids are mad about nature. I don't want to sit there looking at a book of animals going, yeah, sorry, that one's extinct since you were born. That one's gone. It's not extinct, but you'll never see it. Don't worry about that. Oh, there's one place we can see that, but we've got to pay 20 pounds and go through a turnstile. That's not the kind of world I want to live in. You know, and I think there's another element too, which is that our cultures are built around nature or at least they were for most of their history. And I think they still are in many ways. And to my mind, there's a huge desire. You can see it in some of the politics we're particularly seeing, not just in the West, actually, all over the world. And this isn't really my wheelhouse, but it's, it's you can see that there's a kind of rising backlash against globalization all over the world. It's manifested in lots of ways, sometimes in sort of some quite ugly politics, sometimes kind of uh, sort of nationalism and so on. But a lot of that, I think, is grounded in a sort of anxiety and fear of, of some of the excesses of globalization. And to my mind, there is something in there about the ability of rewilding and just connection with nature in general. So it's not exclusive to rewilding. To try and help us build local cultures, rebuild local cultures, build new local cultures that are in some way, they'll never be completely, but in some small way, grounded in place, grounded in nature. For everyone, from any background, you know, this is, you know, w- without the excesses of, of sort of of sort of nationalism that we see going on. So sort of looking at it the other way around. And to me, rewilding can play a role in that. But whether it's the historic myth stuff, you know, we talk about with Somerset Wildlands, one of our projects, we're rewilding the birthplace of England. Whether it's 
sort of new stories that we're going to make up for the future. I think there's something there. It sounds like to me, well, you were talking about that connection with kind of the, 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 the purest rewilding concept is I'm going to relate that back to love. Okay, right. You know, my belief is that to kind of truly love, you've got to be able to kind of let go and become vulnerable, not try and control it. Uh, and you, that if you do that, you give, you're, you're giving a, your whole self to something. And I think that that, I, I can see that parallels with rewilding where it's actually going, no, let's not try and control this. Let's, let's, let, because I love it, because I want it to grow and thrive, let's just go, let's step back and see what happens. And hopefully if that analogy works, then that deeper understanding and that thriving will, will come and follow afterwards. There's definitely something in that, isn't there? It, the hardest part in all of this, I think, in, in the rewilding journey in the conversation is, is letting go. It, it's about being able to let go. Even if I'm not mad, I don't think we're going to ever rewild everywhere. We need food. We, you know, I don't want to have a mass starvation and civil war <laughs> that wouldn't do. You know, I, 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 I like not having to, uh, to live in a warlord's dungeon. Um, <laughs> but I think there is, you know, an element of that. And I think we need to learn to be able to let go. And that's the hardest part, because even when you're doing this, there's so much pressure from all angles. Oh, you should do this and you'll get this result. You should do this and you'll get this result. And sometimes that's completely valid depending on your circumstances. But with the kind of projects we're doing at Somerset Wildlands, we are in a bit of a luxury situation. You know, we don't live on the land. We don't have any tenancies. We don't have to farm them for a specific reason. We have the luxury in many cases of being able to be very, very hands off and just seeing what would happen. And actually, the results have been great. I know for a fact there are probably things we could have done that would boost certain species. You know, I, I know if we mow our fields and take the cuttings and mow our fields, we'll get a wildflower meadow instead of what we have now, which is a sort of scrappy wildflower fueled swampy field in some ways. <laughs> well, that would come at a tremendous cost, right? Because that standing dead matter, those standing seed heads, all those things that overwinter in some cases, that's where the invertebrates are hanging out. That's where they're overwintering. That's where the snakes are hiding. That's where the birds are getting their late, you know, late autumn seeds. So even though we might get more flowers, we would lose a lot of other stuff. And so, you know, as much as we can, we're we're going to try and let things play out. On that note, and again, we were planning to do this towards the top of this interview, but it's just naturally flown, which has been great. But can you tell us more about the origins of your project, how it came about and where you are at currently and, and the the process throughout? Yeah. So um, as I say, I set up Somerset Wildlands, a charity in, uh, only in 2020, but it has sort of deeper roots. Um, I've been interested in rewilding since, as I say, before I knew it had a name. I think the first essay I did in university was on, you know, reintroduction wolves and reintroducing wolves to Scotland. And cool. I got an A for it, so it couldn't have been terrible. Nah. <laughs> probably a bit naive with hindsight. You know, I think I just said we could do it here and it'd be fine. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I think, as I say, growing up in Britain and Ireland, I always had a slight sense of ecological depression. I think I could never put my finger on it, but it was always the sense that whatever had happened here in wildlife terms was over. That was the feeling. And, you know, as I, as I, you know, as I got a bit older and studied a bit more, I realized that wasn't quite true. But basically, that was the feeling. Whatever we had here was tame. It was domesticated. It was very heavily corralled in these sort of reserves and things. Or it was sort of farmyard wildlife. And that was how it was always going to be. And that started to feel increasingly unsatisfactory, particularly as I was then working in, I would train as a zoologist. And then I was working as a, as a campaigner and a sort of investigator for an NGO. And we were, you know, working it in many other parts of the world, India, for example, or, or, or Southeast Asia or China, you know, Southwest China and places like this. And, you know, I wasn't working on conservation there. I was working, doing investigations into environmental crime and similar things, but I was coming across a lot of conservation. We were very closely related. And, and you know, I was astonished by how much they had in countries like India, 
despite all the problems, I'm not trying to make, you know, make out that it's some sort of paradise or that everything was fine. It wasn't. As we all know, there's, you know, huge problems in India, a lot of poverty, a lot of corruption, just a lot of general problems that you have in anywhere where you're trying to manage wildlife. Mm. But they have these amazing national parks full of dangerous creatures, very dangerous creatures, not, you know, not beavers and badgers, elephants, tigers. <laughs> But they had a fantastic sort of commitment to maintaining that. And you found that in many countries as well. And then you'd come back to the UK and we there'd be articles about how red kites were going to snatch children or badgers were too dangerous to be around or, you know, wildcats couldn't, you know, and I thought this is yeah. this isn't right. You know, we I was there trying to work on issues in the rest of the world. But in my the country that I was living in, uh, you know, my part of the world, we felt so backwards, actually in that respect. And, and I felt that you could see that in people and there was something missing from our contemporary culture, but also just a general, I think, sort of gloom that pervades when you, you, you lose this excitement of the connection with nature. And rewilding to me was just the most sensible thing. It's like you get land, you leave it alone, you create spaces for nature, you restore the animals that are missing as best you can, and you mash that up and you get something wonderful. And it makes our lives more exciting. It changes the dynamic between people and nature, changes the political conversation. And that's hope for the future, ultimately. You know, we can't just Otherwise, you know, I've, I've used this analogy before, so stop me, you know, if you don't want me to. But conservation, as I always felt when I was doing it, we were like the elves in Lord of the Rings. You know, we were sitting in our valley and the valley was nice. I'm really looking uh, forward to this analogy, by the way. So, yeah, <laughs> outside, outside of the valley, everything was getting worse and worse and worse. And without something like rewilding or something in those terms where you say, actually, we can make things better, we can push back from those boundaries and recreate space for nature. It's only going to get incrementally worse forever. That's not acceptable to me. So I get a long way around to your question. Somerset Wildlands began in 2014 when I bought some land myself. I bought two fields. Sorry, not 2014, 2016. I moved to the southwest, uh, moved to Bristol, and I bought two fields. First one in 2016, then another one in 2017. That was a sort of experiment, really. They're small fields, eight acres and 12 acres, but I thought I'm just going to leave them and see what happens. The eight acre one's been left alone completely now for seven years. We did a tiny bit of meddling at the beginning, so I couldn't resist. I dug a scrape to make some water, and we put in some harvest mice. That was it. The second one is grazed about once every two years because my neighbor's cows started escaping in, so we thought we'd formalize that. And, and then I thought, actually, that's quite a nice balance. You've got one which gets a very little bit of very light pulse grazing and one that's got nothing at all. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And they're into their sort of seventh year now, sixth and seventh year. And the results, I think, have been great, particularly on the side that hasn't been grazed at all because it's the one that came to us with the least biodiversity. It was just a flat green field of rough grazing with a few rushes and things. And now it's this sort of tangled, steamy mess of thistles and meadow sweet and bird's foot trefoil and wetland plants and, you know, comfrey and hemp and uh, hemp agrimony and, and St. John's wort and yellow flag. And they're all just pouring out of the ditches. And every year it gets messier and there's more flowers and it's more tangled and it hums with dragonflies, it hums with bees. And, you know, at the right time of year, don't get me wrong, go on a cold day in November or March, it can feel completely empty and dead like anywhere in the British countryside but it really comes alive when it's wet and it's damp you know we get we get a lot of wintering birds there now loads of snipe we've had summer snipe for the first time this year I wonder if they're going to end up trying to breed I don't know you know we get egrets otters hares foxes you know this is a tiny tiny space so I thought this is great this works we should do more of this and so I set up the charity in 2020 we've kind of been going as a concern since 2021 like with funding and uh, we bought our first two bits of land in 2022 as a charity. So we bought a 12 acre site right next to the original eight acre site. Cool. So that's going to be in a very similar area. Or not right now, it's about an 88, 80 meter gap, but to all intents and purposes, they're the same. And that's by a big river. And that's going to be fantastic and sort of expand that reserve. And then the other one is a 75 ish acre spot down in, in the south of the Somerset levels called Athelney near a place. Wow. Like and this is 
the one that we say is like the the birthplace of England because Athelney, the Isle of Athelney, is right next to where we bought our land, just just above it. We're just the land below it. That's where Alfred the Great, King Alfred, not King Arthur, as everyone keeps saying, King Alfred, <laughs> hid from the Vikings um, when he was fighting his wars with them. And so he hid there in what were then swamps and then, you know, regrouped his guerrilla army and managed to beat them and sort of lay the foundations for the Kingdom of England. So it's a nice story, you know, that we're rewilding this for the future. Nice. Um, but it's more than that. It's just as well as that. It's just a great site. It's beautiful. It's really floody area. Last winter, it was under four meters of water. So you can imagine as it changes, it's going to scrub up. It's going to read up. It's going to become something really quite different. So it's going to be this beautiful, wet, scrubland, wet grassland in summer. Eventually, I guess it might turn into forest. But then in winter, as it floods, you know, right now, it's just smooth water. But you're going to start getting snags and trees sticking up and things in the future. And there'll be, you know, birds nesting and eagles there. And also, it's going to be beautiful. Basically, you go down now, it's only been rewilding for less than a year. And already, you can feel the change, you know. It's going rough. It's going ragged. There's vetch and trefoil and all sorts coming out there's already more dragonflies in the world there's already more you know butterflies and 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 grasshoppers than you'll see in any of the other fields around and with that particular site what's the history of it in terms of management and have you been tempted to do anything or what kind of yeah. what approach is going to be yeah well we're still working out the exact history but we've been talking with the pre- previous owners who are who are very supportive i should say i should also say that all of this land that the charities bought and this is important we'd say oh, i'll get you know i'll get told off but it is important has been bought with loans from an outfit called We Have the Power, which is a sort of, they've got a funding nature network and they provide what you might call philanthropic loans, soft loans for charities to buy land. So um, we've bought this land. We do need to now pay it back. So if you like the sound of what we're doing, please you know do seek us out on the website and, and support us because we do actually need to raise money to make sure we can keep all of this land forever for nature. You know, we, we've got, we've got a, several years to sort of pay back as much as we can to, to keep all of this land. But to come back to your question about what we're doing and how it's been managed, I mean, the land has been mostly just grazed. So it's been grazed probably by cattle and by sheep for many years, perhaps in some cases for hundreds of years, but in other cases, actually not so long. You know, you can look at the records and in some cases there were crops grown in some bits. In other cases, it seems that even though it's just been grazed, actually there have been interventions made. So I, I believe with some of, some of the Athelney site, I believe it was flooded very badly one year and then they had to sort of reseed all the grass. When I first went down and looked at some of the fields, I was puzzling as to why some of them looked like they'd been seeded with single species grass or a small mix of grasses. I think that doesn't fit with what we've been told, but I, I believe now that because they, it was, there was heavy flooding, they, they reseeded large areas. So you get quite low diversity of grass species in some parts. So yeah, there are, we are always tempted. We're always under pressure to do various things. We're always tempted. But to begin with, we'll just relax and see what happens. You know, this, this land, all of the land that we get in the levels, you know, the levels was once a huge swamp. At times it was salt water, at times it was fresh water, a mix of both. Drier and wetter has ebbed and flowed over the centuries, but it was always a kind of vast swamp that was then drained and tamed and dammed and so on. You know, this was an area that once hosted pelicans and lynx and white-tailed eagles and giant river sturgeons and wildcats and all kinds of stuff. You know, this was, a, this was you know, I always say this was the Danube Delta of England. You know, if I'm feeling exuberant, I'll say it was the Okavango Delta. <laughs> a spectacular, wild wetland. And it's been farmed and worked for centuries. So, I, you know, I take a long view of these things. We're going to relax a little bit. If we leave this land alone just for a few years and observe, that's probably the first time it's been allowed to breathe possibly in centuries in some cases, but certainly in decades. And to me, that's quite important, you know, that before we go in and say we're going to do this and this and this and this and this and then plant all these species, we just wait and see what happens. Because actually a lot of it will take care of itself and probably take care of itself better than we can. And even just in the year that we've had this larger site, you can already start to see the subtle changes of where things will play out. So you get some areas that are getting willow scrub. 
that was probably already there, but being maintained at a low level in the sword. Now it's coming up quite quickly. We're getting Hawthorn and Blackthorn coming in from the ditches, which tells me that there's probably not a lot of deer pressure in this area. We do see deer, but they're not a huge number. Whereas on the other sides further north, it's taken seven years for any scrub to start coming in. But we also know the flooding will kill a lot of things. So the flooding will kill a lot of scrub as well. A lot of different kinds of plants. So, so it's going to be a mix. We're starting to see a lot of vetch and a lot of different flowers coming up through the sward and, and really, you know, making them themselves felt. And as the grass dies over, they will presumably start to spread around a little bit. So we're going to just wait and see. It's possible, you know, with the larger sites in a few years, we will do that little bit of grazing. That's a possibility. I would never say never. Uh, you know, horses, cattle. I'd love to get some pigs, but problem is because it's underwater most of the year, they would need to be able to swim and get away <laughs> or to put them somewhere else. And this is the problem. I don't, I don't want to get trapped in a situation of farming. I think it's very important when you're doing rewilding. And this is what we feel at Somerset Wildlands, that whatever technique you're using to manage the land, if you are using any managers, any techniques, doesn't preclude a wider change. So while obviously grazing is a really important ecological process and it's something we will definitely think about, you know, there's a big difference between using domestic livestock and what you would ideally have, which would be wild livestock. Now, we're not in a position where those wild livestock are going to be available anytime soon. But, you know, if the ultimate objective is wild land that is unmanaged or as unmanaged as it can be, it's worth keeping that in mind at the beginning before you embark on a bunch of interventions, I think, that might actually make that impossible in the future to turn around. For example, there's every chance that in the next 10 or 20 years, beavers and wild boar will turn up in the levels anyway. We would like there to be space for them to thrive if and when they do. And if they turn up on our land, they'd be very, very welcome. If we have a load of fencing and a load of other stuff put in, that might make that process harder. Interesting. Um, similarly, when someone says to me, I mean, that, that's a hope. It may not happen. But yeah. similarly, someone says to me, if you leave it for 60 years, it, it'll become a forest. Okay, maybe in 60 years, it'll become a forest. And if we want to, we can intervene then. That's that's easy. We've got the technology to do that overnight if we wish. But again, in 60 years, if there aren't beavers there at the very least, I'll be quite disappointed in my... 102nd year <laughs> so any forest of 60 years time will probably be quite different to a forest of now plus the climate may be completely different too so you know to me it's about creating the space so we will look at small interventions the only immediate interventions we're looking at right now are probably going to be some waterworks so we're going to do some scrapes which is just basically a way of creating shallow trenches which the water can flow into that gives a bit of space for the wetland plants to go into the, the sort of fields that have been heavily seeded and we'll reprofile the ditches because they're very straight right now so we'll make them a bit less straight and a bit less steep and we will we will there's a structure on the site that we can use to raise the water level or if we replace it it will raise the water level and even though it's raising it artificially as it stands it's putting it back to a more natural state if that makes sense because it's all been heavily drained so by now raising it a bit we put it back to a sort of mm -hmm. wet state that keeps the soil wet keeps the peat wet so they're the kind of only initial interventions we're thinking of it to do with water Longer term, love some new species. From there, I make, I make, I'm one of these people. I make no apologies for the fact that I would love there to be lynx, pelicans, all the works. Okay, how that happens, of course, has to be done properly and and, and you know sensitively. And and I'm not suggesting we're going to steamroller over anyone's wishes. And we're certainly not going to introduce a a lynx onto our land. It's far too small, obviously, for a start. And you know, blah blah blah. But you know, I think ultimately, yeah, what we shouldn't be ashamed of saying that's what we're aiming for. But in the short term, you know, we'd be looking at much smaller things, water voles, maybe glowworms that kind of stuff again many of these things will turn up by themselves there's probably no need for us to do water bowls if we do the habitat they'll just turn up yeah it's, it's so exciting isn't it just to see what to sit back and see what nature does and what's going to emerge and uh, challenging but exciting it's so thrilling and you know i've had this experience with the little sites i bought myself before the charity where i got to know these small sites sort of more intimately than any piece of land i'd ever known and you get to know you know where the hare lives 
where the, the roe deer has her fawns, where the foxes hang out, where small micro changes in the habitat are taking. And it's so thrilling. And I've had to relearn all of my zoology and ecology, really, because I'd forgotten almost all of it. My field skills are terrible. You know, I make no bones about that. And I'm having to relearn all this stuff because I've forgotten most of it. But it's been absolutely thrilling. And with the new charity, of course, more people are going to get that chance as well. Obviously, people can go see the lands, but also we have a, you know, we have a membership scheme for the charity, which means people can become members. And from the members, we have drawn a, a, our first sort of team of volunteer wardens. And they are really people where they're not enforcers, but they are people who are just essentially tasked to go and walk the sites record what they see, record the changes, get to know them. And that will build up into, you know, oh, and then they file a report and that will build up into such a body of knowledge over the years. But also for them, they're going to get to know those sites in the way that is thrilling to them. You know, they're going to get to know all the little changes and, and sort of know how the land subtly looks different in all the different seasons. And, you know, a lot of these people are very local to the area as well, which is great because it means they'll be able to really sort of hopefully spread that that joy about. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean, as you say, it's about joy, it's about connection and it's about moving lightly through an environment we're not trying not to extract but trying to just take joy out of it by simply being and observing yeah so one of the things that interested me looking on your website as you talked about this concept of wild stepping stones on if you want to say a bit more about that yeah so the wild stepping stones idea is really based on where we are in the somerset level so we have very quite a diffuse land ownership structure there's not vast estates this isn't like the highlands or, or the north of england or something we don't have huge estates with tenant farmers and sort of big houses attached it's very small farms Often it's single fields and things that are coming up for sale. So rather than think, how do we get hold of a huge single estate and rewild that or rewild part of that? We're doing it from the ground up using this, what we call a stepping stones approach, which is a pretty well-established principle in, in ecology, the idea of having stepping stones. You know, we sometimes call it decentralized rewilding. We're building up these small plots of land. Some may be very small, you know, five or 10 acres. Some may be bigger, 100 acres, 200 acres. They're all small in the scheme of things and allowing them to go wild as much as we can, depending on their individual circumstances. And because these are all coming from a different place, they're all starting at you know different starting points and subtly different locations, it means that each one will become something subtly different in the landscape. And they'll also be at different stages of their journey too, so they won't all be starting at the same time. And the idea is that you know we have a landscape in the levels that has got some really great nature reserves, managed nature reserves, they're going to stay the way they are. A lot of farmland in between, some good, some bad. Most of that's going to stay too, frankly. But then in between that, you've got this network of ditches and waterways that provides good connectivity. So our hope is that the, the, the stepping stones will simply start to become areas of wildness within this broader landscape. They form refuges, places of connectivity, and also for the people who live there and work there and travel through there and like to visit there, they will simply become these areas that are starting to go wild as they see around them. You know, as we get more of them, they'll just start to notice there's a few more areas that are kind of going wild in the landscape and you can go see them. But maybe you won't go into them, maybe you will, but they'll just be there and they'll be subtly changing the character of the landscape and allowing things to play out, changes to play out that might not be possible in the other areas. And, and we think it's an incredibly exciting and hopeful thing. You know, obviously we've bought some land, we need to raise funds to, to sort of repay the bulk of that land and then we can go on and do more. We do place a focus on owning the land ourselves as a charity because that means we have sort of freedom of action. We have freedom to kind of put our money where our mouth is, as it were, and, and, and sort of really try and deliver the kind of rewilding we want to do. But we are, of course, also interested in working with, you know, existing landowners or people who maybe want to buy land and have us manage it under some arrangement. You know, we're looking at all that. But ultimately, the main objective is to try and own land because it's the simplest way of doing it. And it's something I've, I've seen over the years in this business. But yeah, the idea is, is we just build up this network of wild stepping stones and just let them do their thing. You know, the insects will come back. Hopefully the birds will come back. Maybe they can be, maybe they can provide, you know, locations for reintroductions or reinforcements as well but they'll simply be something different in the landscape you know we talk a lot about mosaic and rewilding 
they're trying to build up a mosaic of habitats. This means you get lots of different habitats in an area, even a very small area, rather than large single habitats. And that's really important because some of our sites are quite small. We don't feel we need to create every ecological niche on one small site because that's often impossible. And the only way to do that would be through very heavy intervention. But if you step back and look at the broader landscape, you're creating that mosaic from the ground up. So you might have 100 acres of grazed land and you've got a 10 acre bit going wild in the middle. Well, that 10 acre bit might be providing just the conditions that something needs to survive in that whole wider area. You know, hedge, you know, nesting areas, refugia from silage cutting or winter, autumn food stock. One of our small sites, at times, we get hundreds of goldfinches just coming to this one bit because of all the thistle seeds. Now, some people hate thistles, which I understand, and the goldfinches are certainly not nesting there. Uh Much like the way they come to your garden in winter to find food. They're just descending there for a week or two just to get something that they need to help them survive the broader season. And that's, I think, you know, a nice way of thinking of it. So, yeah, so we're trying to grow. We've got a target of a thousand acres by 2030, which is a stretch target, but it's a good one to have. We're doing about a hundred. We've got about a hundred. It depends. There's a couple of affiliates, but we're just talking about a hundred and sort of 20 acres of sort of our land and affiliate land in the network so far and more to come. But we do need support. We need people to, well, frankly, let's be honest, we need money. That's really Mm -hmm. what rewilding comes down to at the end of the day is we need land and we need money or a way to get them. So we need people's support financially. We need it morally so we need them to become members and then they say they can become volunteers and so on or, or, or take part in other ways we need them to donate and we need them just to spread the word about what we're doing and tell people if they like it and tell us if they like it because ultimately the only way this is going to work is if we can build a community of support around rewilding both in the area but also more broadly nationally you know there are lots of people who don't want this to happen although actually it is very popular but there are some there are some people actually that you don't want this kind of thing to happen yeah, and on that note, I'm conscious of time here, but I, I just wanted to kind of try and get the, the balance into this discussion because it's been fascinating. And I think Chloe and I sitting here going, it all makes sense. Of course it all makes sense. But it's always worth trying to balance it a little bit and, and say, well, what, what kind of what have the challenge, challenges been? What are people concerned about with what you're trying to achieve? Mm. It's an interesting one because people keep telling us rewilding is so controversial. But actually, on the ground, that has not been the experience at all. It's controversial amongst people who don't want it to happen and are trying to make it very controversial. Most people we've spoken to, you know, on the ground who live locally are, are seem all in favour of it. Everyone from, you know, I mean, there's one or two of the local farmers who are, I would say, they're not against it, but they're a bit suspicious, I think. And I think mm-hmm. maybe they see it as a an implied sort of rebuke to what they're doing. And I, I hope I hope people don't take it that way because, you know, I always say I'm not a farmer, I'm a rewilder. I don't know how to farm, but I'm learning how to rewild. And they're very different things. They achieve different jobs. And I think if we pitch rewilding as a job for farmers, then of course they're going to feel stressed because they're under pressure from so many directions to do so many different things. Cheap food, cleaner food, greener environment, this, that, and the other, you know, more rewilding. And rewilding and farming are, are different things, you know. Um, so I think if we keep them separate, it, it takes the pressure off a little bit. But, you know, I, people stop me in the street. And honestly, because I spend so much of my time as an environmental campaigner, I'm used to arguments. I'm used to fighting. I'm used to being trolled by the climate deniers and fossil fuel media for the last 20 years and <laughs> chased by secret police in various countries and so on. So, you know, I'm used to that idea. And people stop me. And part of me is always like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. And they usually go, what are you doing here? And I'll sort of explain it. And they go, oh, that sounds brilliant. Great. Yeah. You know, how can I get involved? So even on Facebook... The local Facebook, which is not a forum known for its moderation, really. <laughs> people are lovely. There's one or two people, but basically most people are lovely and they seem to get it. So I think it's not as controversial as people think. And also the countryside gets romanticized and discussed in the media, particularly in a very simplistic way. It's like farmers say this, the countryside is about this. There are country people and non-country people. 
Well, I don't know about anywhere else, but certainly the part of the country that I'm working in now, people are as much a mixed bag as anywhere. You know, you have artists, scientists, soldiers, politicians, shopkeepers, farmers, IT consultants, rewilders, you know, there's a whole mixed group of people living and working there. So there is no one countryside community. It's about building a community of interest and support around an issue. And there seem to be many, many people who love this idea. Well, thank you very much. I think that's a really kind of optimistic note to end on. It certainly echoes our experience so far of the process as well. Should we fit in your definition of rewilding just yet, though? Final note wise, of course, we'll put links in the show notes. But for people that are up and about, is there anywhere you'd like to direct people to? Yeah, it would be massively remiss of me um, not to direct into our website. So please go to somersetwildlands.org, somersetwildlands, all one word, .org. You can find links to our current sites, photos of the progress we've been making. You can sign up to our mailing list or crucially and most importantly, you can become a member or donate money. And frankly, why wouldn't you? Because it's <laughs> such a good idea and such a lovely project and we're such nice people. So please do that. <laughs> right. And yeah, please go to somersetwildlands.org. You can also find us on Twitter, or whatever it's called now, uh, LinkedIn, <laughs> all the usuals. You can find us on all those. I just want to say thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Our pleasure. It's just gold dust that continually having these chats with different people doing different things in different ways, all with the similar goals. It's just adding to that kind of the arsenal, weaponry or options or choices to us to better understand why other people are, are t- making the decisions they make and then better understand and kind of help us understand what we are trying to achieve with the Grange project, why we are trying to achieve it and where it fits in the mosaic, again, do you like it, mosaic of the rewilding or wilding ecosystem oh look at that there's two oh you've got it well done Tom. <laughs> yeah exactly that it was it was fascinating to hear about a slightly different model in terms of it being entirely a charity that's funded by well essentially by the philanthropic loan stage but hopefully by donations in future and without necessarily having to rely on sources of income like ecotourism or, or food production and you know we've been thinking a lot haven't we about what is going to be the best model for us moving forward and that's helped to inform some of our conversations uh-huh I think the other thing that I was really struck by in the interview was his point around, I think we use the word ecological depression and that kind of being connected to the absence of wild spaces in the UK. I guess it's not a point I'd really considered before that we really don't have any wilderness as such and what impact that might have on our psychological well-being as well as obviously the obvious impacts for nature and wildlife. I wonder what the most wild places are in England, Wales, Scotland or I think it's fascinating because if you'd asked me that question two years ago I would have said oh you know the Brecon Beacons or um, some of the Scottish Highlands but Peak Peak District and yeah exactly but what we know now is that actually those have been so intensively grazed by deer or by sheep that actually those are I mean I think George Monbiot describes them as ecological deserts which is really shifts your perspective and and the kind of what the questions about what what does wildness actually look like Mm. Well, if anyone uh, could help us with that, again, please feel free to send us an email. I genuinely would like to kind of explore that as a topic. So email again is hello at grangeproject.co.uk. What I'd love to think more about in future episodes as well is about how does wildness benefit us kind of intrinsically? And I guess I'm just really curious because I have a real sense as a, at a cultural level that we're struggling. And I know that's related to the climate crisis and a lot of that's related to perhaps the relative deprivation within our society in terms of the difference between those that have the most of wealth and those that have the least. But it just feels that there's something a little bit fractured in how we're existing at the moment. And we're seeing that in our 
increases in mental health disorders, however you want to define or understand that, and especially in the kind of distress experienced by young young people. And I, I just wonder whether there's something here about spending time in nature, about being part of wilder spaces, and whether there's something there we can make more sense of when it comes to kind of helping us heal at a kind of community level. That's deep, Chloe. Well, I'm feeling quite deep this morning. That's it. Excellent. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, I think we can leave it for another week. If you are still looking to support, there's actually a number of ways, growing number of ways in which you can support the Grange Project. If you go to our website, there's a volunteer in the top right button, or I think support button, and you press on there and say volunteers, a form you can fill out. And just goes onto our database for people that um, if you do want to give a bit of time or come a bit of, bit of time in nature, then please fill it, fill it out and then we won't spam you. We'll just we'll reach out as and when there's a project that we think people might enjoy. Maybe not over the winter due, due to it being cold, wet, but who knows. Also, we've got the simple, easiest way you can support by just as soon as you finish listening to this episode, get onto your whatever platform you listen to the podcast, do a quick rate and review. Makes a huge, huge difference. I can't emphasize that enough. And again, we're on all social medias, so you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, etc. Grange.project. Thank you very much to Alistair and for listening to this episode.